Um, we have been walking our way through Peter's letter. He writes to a group of struggling and stressed and pressed, um, suffering Christians. They're in places like Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia. And he writes them and he wants them to know that they possess this living hope in Jesus. He wants them to know what this means to take hold of this living hope in difficult circumstances. And today we continue our walk, really picking up where we left off last Sunday. And that's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Um, would you listen closely to this God's word? Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, as we approach your word, we ask, Lord, that you would do the thing that only you can do. It's the thing we ask of you every time we're together. And Lord, that's by the power of your spirit and in your kindness and your mercy. Would you take these words in your word, Lord, the words that I prepared, and would you use them to great effect in our hearts, Lord, in our souls, in our lives, in our church. Well, this is our prayer, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when you're a pastor who, among the responsibilities, is to preach every week, you spend a lot of time reading the Bible, actually. And you spend a lot of time studying different words and you kind of outline passages and you try to learn background and history. You spend a lot of time reading the scriptures. And sometimes as you're digging around in a particular passage, this happens to me sometimes, but one central question comes to your mind from the passage that you just find yourself over and over and over again asking in some way. And that happened to me this week. There's one question that came to my mind and my heart and it just continued to stay there and sit there. So this will be the question that today's sermon is built around. It's a simple question. I'm gonna ask it to you. As I read this passage, I cannot help but think, what happened to Peter? 
I mean, when I read this, I'm thinking, what happened to Peter? Because here you have the apostle Peter telling struggling, suffering, pressed Christians that they can have no fear, that they can live fearlessly. The apostle Peter is telling a group of pressed and struggling and suffering Christians that they can calmly and gently and reasonably give a reason for the hope that they have in Jesus. Here you have the apostle Peter telling a group of struggling, suffering Christians that it's okay to suffer. And that suffering is actually, if you're suffering for the right reasons, for good, there's blessing attached to it. And I asked myself the question, what happened to Peter? And the reason I asked myself this question is because Peter writes these words sometime in the 60s, first century, but just some 30 years earlier, we see Peter and the gospel writers tell us that he is in a courtyard outside of the high priest Caiaphas's house and Jesus is inside the house on trial. And Peter's outside in the courtyard and listen to how Peter is responding. First of all, he's afraid. He doesn't wanna be associated with Jesus. A servant girl is saying things to him like, I think you were with him. I think you know him. And he's afraid. He's afraid that he'll be associated with Jesus and that he will suffer. He's asked if he even knows Jesus and he denies that he knows Jesus. And, and rather than speaking of the hope that he has in Jesus with gentleness and respect, the apostle Peter some 30 years earlier is denying he even knows Jesus and he's doing it in vulgar cursing. And rather than faithfully enduring the suffering that he's afraid will come his way, he's denying Jesus in order that he could escape that suffering. So what happened to Peter? Now to answer that question, I want to do two things. I want to explain to you what Peter is saying to a group of Christians in this text. And then I want to try to answer what happened. And I want to answer that in such a way that my hope is that it would help you take hold of a real living hope in Jesus. So let's begin with what Peter is actually trying to say here. I think he's trying to get across two ideas to his hearers. Here's the first one. The first idea that Peter wants his hearers to know is that Christians don't have to be afraid. Christians don't have to be afraid. Look with me at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And it's a strange question because you can just imagine one of Peter's hearers thinking, come on, dude, what are you talking about? Who is there to harm us 
If we're zealous for what is good, well, what about all the persecution we're enduring? What about the way that we're, some of us in our own churches are being drugged off to prison? What about the Roman governors? What about the Roman authorities? What about the ways we're being pushed aside and maligned and slandered? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Well, there's a whole lot of people there to harm you. It's almost what you can imagine Peter's hearers thinking. There's plenty of stuff to harm. But Peter nonetheless wants you and me and his hearers to know that as Christians, we don't have to be afraid, which is really something to say. Because fear is peddled out there like a good. Fear sells and it sells well. There are people making millions and billions of dollars to keep you in a fearful state. People profit off fear. Evil and dark spiritual forces, I believe the New Testament would lead us to believe, are preying on our fears in order to distract us from faith in Christ. I know that there are some people here this afternoon that just struggle with fear. Maybe not because you're being persecuted in the same way that Peter's hearers were, but you just find yourself so deeply afraid. There's a line in a book that I like, and it says that it's actually easy to hide your fear if you're just afraid all the time. The writer Marilyn Robinson says that fear is not a Christian state of mind. But yet fear tends to dominate. You know, there are some times that on a random Tuesday afternoon, I can find myself so full of fear and I don't even know exactly what I'm afraid of. It's like it just sits on my chest like a weight. And Peter is saying to his hearers, and he's saying to us that as a Christian, we don't have to be afraid. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Later in verse 17, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The New Testament tends to tell us two things about fear. One is that we don't have to be afraid because nothing can ultimately harm us. We are kept in God's perfect care. There's provision and protection in the ultimate sense for us. But on top of that, the New Testament leads us to believe that not only do we have provision and protection for the things that we find ourselves fearful of, but in addition to that, God has gone to do even better and to give us blessing in the midst of suffering. See, it sounds like Peter 30 years ago, he, he didn't know this or he somehow didn't believe this or he somehow didn't understand this as he sat in a courtyard afraid and denying and abandoning Jesus. He didn't know that there would be blessing for endurance. He didn't know that he would have ultimate protection. But he wants his hearers to know that a Christian doesn't have to be afraid. Now, there's a second thing I think Peter is trying to get across to us in this passage. 
Let me see if this makes sense to you. It seems like he's trying to get us to see that for the Christian, our call is really actually pretty simple. Now, this does not mean that our call is easy, but the call of the Christian life is rather simple. I don't know if you've ever considered the fact that following Jesus actually simplifies your life. Now, it doesn't make your life easier really at all. And you should hear that. But it does simplify your life. Look with me at verse 15. After saying that we can have no fear, we don't have to be troubled. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. This means at least a couple of things. First of all, honoring Christ in our life as holy means that we understand that Jesus is the greatest and best thing in our life. Jesus is in a class of his own entirely when it comes to your loyalties and your affection and your commitments. Now, this is a challenging word because most of us, including me, I live my life according to how I want to live my life. And then Jesus things I sort of grab and add on to my life when it's convenient for me. I don't bend my life around the Lordship of Jesus. I expect Jesus to somehow bend around my, my stuff. But see, it's so much more simple to make him at the center of our hearts, affections and commitments and loyalties. And to honor Christ as holy not only means putting him at the center of our hearts, affections and loyalties, but it also means obeying him. Peter is saying in the midst of trouble and struggle and trial and pressing and complication and confusing, confusing things, simply knowing Christ and obeying him and then next, being ready to explain why you obey him. Look at verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Here it is, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter imagines a situation. He imagines the Christian enduring suffering and doing so without fear. He imagines the Christian enduring suffering and doing so without fear and making Jesus Lord of his or her life and obeying Jesus in costly ways. And then he imagines that as the Christian is doing that, there will be people who will come around and will say, hold on a second. What, what, is, what is the reason for this hope in this Jesus that you have? And then he imagines the Christian in that moment being able in kind, gentle, respectful ways 
explaining that. See, Christians are not supposed to be combative, argumentative people. Irrational, unreasonable. The call is that we obey Jesus, that we kindly explain why, and then we endure. We endure the consequences that come. Again, this is totally and completely opposite of Peter in that courtyard. He's cursing. He's denying he has any hope in Jesus. So what happened to Peter? I mean, how does Peter in the Gospels go from this brash, sure-of-himself man to a fearful, denying Christ, folding under the pressure. How does he go from that to then this bold apostle who will preach the gospel, who will gladly receive suffering for Jesus and who will write words like this, encouraging you and me to obey Christ, to not be afraid and to endure come what may. What happened to Peter? Well, I think the best way to explain what happened to Peter for your consideration and for your celebration, for your joy tonight, is simply to say that I think Jesus happened to Peter. And let me explain what I mean. You see, from that courtyard and in that house after Jesus stands trial, Jesus goes to the cross to purchase forgiveness for sinful people. Jesus goes to the cross and then he goes into the grave and he's raised from the dead. And the scriptures teach that he comes out of the grave holding the keys of death and hell. In other words, he now owns the universe as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. This same Jesus encounters Peter and Peter in an act of repentance runs to him. He actually jumps out of the boat and begins swimming to him, we're told in the gospel of John. And it's there that he has the opportunity to be restored to Christ. And this same Jesus who dies on the cross for Peter's sins, who's raised from the dead as the Lord of the universe, who restores Peter, the same Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where the Bible teaches us at this very moment. He rules the universe by the word of his power. And this same Jesus pours out his spirit and the spirit fills Peter with joy and peace and believing, but also with the tangible presence of God indwelling in his own heart and soul. So much so that Peter begins to realize that Jesus is the greatest treasure that anyone could ever know and that his life is united to Christ. So much so that Peter learns to take hold of this living hope that drives out fear, that produces in hearts and souls a real, real, live, living hope, come what may. And that gives the strength to endure. 
And I want to ask you one last question as we ready our hearts to celebrate Holy Communion. And that's, do you know, do you know that the exact, I mean exact, exact same thing that happened to Peter has happened to you? You see, the same Jesus died on the cross to purchase forgiveness for the ways in which you deny him. The same Jesus walks out of the grave holding the keys of the universe as King of kings and Lord of lords in such a way that apart from his will, that not even a hair can fall from your head. This same Jesus has restored you, the scriptures teach us. He's reconciled you to God and given you peace with God. This same Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he upholds the universe by the word of his power, making you more secure and more safe than you could possibly imagine. The same Jesus has poured out his spirit on you, indwelling you in such a way that can fill you with joy and peace and believing, but give you the very presence of God in your own heart and in your own soul. In other words, this very same Jesus has brought you in. You've become united to him in such a way that you have a real, live, living hope that casts out fear, that teaches you to endure. bubbles up in your heart and soul a real living hope. I cannot possibly know all the ways that this simple announcement of the good news of Jesus needs to strike your heart and your soul tonight. I can't, I can't know that. But I do know three things. These things that I have told you tonight are true. These things that I've told you tonight are tailor-made for your exact struggling, suffering situation. They apply so exactly to your circumstance. And these things that I have told you tonight are there for you to take hold of in a fresh way, even this afternoon. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that these things that we have heard tonight by the power of your spirit would give us great hope. Lord, would cast out fear. Lord, that would give us the strength to endure. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.